Questions on what we went over just before the break? Leftover questions? Okay, I mean, if you could stay for 15 minutes without breathing, then that's a sign something special has happened. <laughs> if it's just kind of a brief, you know, you stop breathing for a bit, and then when you start up again, okay, that's, that's, that's pretty ordinary. It goes on for a little while. Um, I don't know about 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like a normal pause. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a, there is no sensation of it. Mm-hmm. It feels like from what you've been describing and so on, I don't feel like, I feel like I've, you know, there's been a bit of a progression and then kind of a drop into this, mm-hmm. but from what you've been describing, it sounds like there should be more of a progression before mm-hmm. something like that. Well, if you can maintain it, fine. But if you find that it, it, doesn't, I mean, it doesn't feel comfortable, you know, allow yourself to breathe again. Okay. Okay. Then it's very uncomfortable to freak out. Okay. You see, if the body needs to breathe, it will breathe. Okay. It's the, the freaking out isn't about lack of air. Mm-hmm. It's, it's about the fact I'm not breathing, right? Or that nothing is happening. Yeah. yeah. That nothing's happening. How maybe how you were talking before about nothing happens. We are not there, and that's worrisome. Mm-hmm. Okay. What what you want to do is okay. If it does feel like hey, I'm sitting here and I'm not breathing, can I just let that? There's a sensation of everything in the body connecting so that all parts of the body are participating in this not breathing. <coughs> and, and it feels okay. I mean, this is not, it's, again, it, this is a state where it's, there's no rapture or pleasure, even just very equanimous, very, very kind of neutral. But you're very alert. That's what you want. It's the alertness that you want to be focusing on. And there's a sense that everything in the body is connected. This is where the perception of the breath energy and you know, originality in the body as opposed to coming from outside is a very useful perception. Everything I need is in the body. It doesn't have to be like, distinct, like noticing of step one, step two. No, a lot of people find that they, they can just go right there pretty quickly. Well, not quickly, but I mean, it eventually, eventually it happens that they get in there and they say, Gee, you know, I didn't see any clear delineation. For some people it's very clear that it lays, others it's kind of a gradual settling in. And it's better if you can see the stages because then you'll begin to see, oh, this happened and then I dropped that, and this happened and I dropped that. But if you find you're settling in and there's just, you're very still and you're there you know, fully, you know, fully aware of the body, okay, and nothing has to happen because that's the state in which if anything happens you can, you can basically deal with it right away. So let's move on to, the, oh, you had a question? Yes. Why can't we 
The problem with focusing on the heartbeat is that you start squeezing the heartbeat in a particular direction, which may not be healthy. You might say, gee, I want my heart to beat really, really slowly, which if you've got you know, problems with hypertension, you may be okay, maybe I can calm my heartbeat down. But there are other times when you're just, then you won't be getting enough oxygen for your body. Well, this is what the breath is the thing that you, that you can control most directly. Yeah, so you work on that. So if I breathe too fast, I'm hyperventilating. It's a bad sign. Okay, just calm down. Sometimes the heart responds, and sometimes it doesn't respond. The breath is a lot more under your control. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's move on to the third jhana. The fading of rapture. Remain equanimous, mindful, and alert, and you sense pleasure of the body. You enter and remain in the third jhana, of which the noble ones declare equanimous and mindful, he has a pleasant abiding. He permeates and pervades, suffuses and fills his very body with the pleasure divested of rapture. Here's just a sense of ease filling the whole body. Just as in the lotus pond, some of the lotuses born growing in the water stay immersed in the water and flourish without standing up out of the water. So notice, there is no movement in the image here. You've got the water, which stands for the pleasure, but the, the, the pond is still now. Um, so that's, that's the image for the third jhana. Now, what happens here is that you, if you in the second jhana, there will be this sense of energizing energy. Um, and after all, it gets to be too much. You begin to realize it would be much more calmer if I could, much calmer, if I could not have this excess energy. Because after all, it begins to feel like that. It gets excess. Sometimes it gets stuck in some part of the body. Many people feel it in the chest, that the chest gets kind of overloaded with energy, or sometimes it'll be in the head, in which case you have to perceive the energy going out the arms. If it's in the chest, have it go out the arms, out the palms of the hands. Or if it's in the head, think of it going down either the front of the neck or down the back of the neck. Um, Hawkwind's image was having a big ball of butter on top of your head, and they give it melting to kind of bring things down. And then what I found is that you know, the, the level of your awareness of the body, where there is this excess energy, is like kind of like on one level of energy, and there's a more subtle level of energy which doesn't have those movements. So it's kind of like going below the radar, and just settling into something that's more subtle, kind of in the right in this in the same place. But there's a more subtle level of energy there. Um, and a good analogy, I think, would be radio waves. You know, you've got all all the different radio stations in Portland are going through the air right now. And you've got a radio, and you can tune in either to whatever is what, what's the hard rock station, or you know, or the rap, or the rap station, or you could do the easy listening station. I mean, there, there's different levels of you know radio energy going through the air right now, and it depends on you. Okay, which which you're going to tune into. So there will be kind of a grosser level of energy in the body, but there will also be a more subtle level of energy in the same place. If you can see, okay, there's this subtler, subtler level of energy, tune in there. And then after all, the grosser level will just kind of disappear. Yes? So are these jhana states, uh, I mean, the radio example is a good one, but are these jhana states sort of like preparing your body to receive that energy? And uh, when your body is prepared and ready to receive it? Uh, yeah, the, the potential for the energy is there. And simply, are you going to allow it to suffuse and permeate? Something special, but the, but the potential the potential is always there, and it's learning how to tune into it. 
and then be able to stay with it. It's, it's a lot of it, tuning in and staying. Those are the skills. But it's always Yeah. And this, this level, that when we get into the fourth jhana, where everything comes down, there is a still level of energy in the body already. It's just that you have to be, the mind has to be really, really calm to tune into that. So you're tuning into what's pretty it's much what's already there. I, I was down in Swan Walk in Thailand. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They worshiped there, and about the fourth day, I got into some very, um, I, it was kind of amazing. I was, I had a sense of wonder about it too. I wasn't sure whose body it was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it was a kind of a disident disidentification from uh, the me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I watched it for a while, and everybody left. The, you know, I could feel everybody leaving after a while, mm -hmm. and uh, enjoyed it for a while, and then thought I'd better leave. Mm -hmm. But it's been dirt. I, I haven't really felt like I could get back to it. So mm -hmm. kind of like I felt like almost like I went through a hole or went up and you know sucked <laughs> upward. And, uh, well, there's something called beginner's luck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you hit your first golf ball and it goes right in the hole, and you say, hey, that's easy. You know? well, five days. Yeah, but still, yeah, yeah. But even, but even five days, that's still beginner, you know. <laughs> and then the problem is learning how to sort of, okay, what did I do? You, you weren't really watching what you're doing, so you couldn't go back and, and, and reproduce it. What we're doing here is learning how to watch it stage by stage by stage. Yeah. So with the third jhana, you've sort of tuned into this more subtle level of energy, and it's the breath energy has almost stopped moving, or the in and out breath has almost stopped, but it's still there. It's very subtle, and there's a sense of pleasure filling the body. And then from there, you can move into the fourth jhana when the breath finally stops. Um, the description here is the abandoning of pleasure or pain. As with the early disappearance of joys and distresses, you enter and remain in the fourth jhana, purity of equanimity and mindfulness, neither pleasure nor pain. You sit permeating the body with a pure, bright awareness, just as if a man were sitting covered from head to foot with a white cloth, so there would be no part of his body to which the white cloth did not extend. Now notice here, this is the first image where there's no water. Okay, the, the pleasure's gone. There's no movement. The, the man is just sitting there very still. And here the white cloth stands just for the sense of very, very clear awareness that fills the body. And there are other passages where the Buddha describes, okay, this is the state where the breath stops. <clears throat> now the advantage of having this full body awareness, even when you leave the fourth jhana, you come back out to the lower levels of concentration, the fact that you've got this full body awareness means that you've got a really good foundation so that when anything comes into the mind or anything comes into your, your attention, it's in the context of this larger framework that you've, that you've established, which is something. So you can go through the day walking around, aware of various things, but you've still got this sense of your framework. So it's a state of concentration you can carry with you as you're going through the day. The second advantage is, you know, suppose you're focusing on one spot, but you know, the defilement is starting up in another spot. You're not going to see it. It's when you, because many times you know the, the problem is not where you think it is. It's going to be someplace else. The fact that your awareness is all around helps you detect these unexpected things that you wouldn't see if you had you know just the spotlight on the one on the one object. So there are some advantages to having that one-pointed awareness, but also and when you're really dealing with your defilements, you've got to have a full all-around awareness, so you can see you know see who's coming at you from what direction. So are there any questions on, on these descriptions here?
Margaret? Okay, so the, you're saying this, this, I think you made reference to in the past this 360 degree awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is in the fourth John, you said? Actually, you start it with the first. Yeah. It's when it's really, it's in the fourth jhana that's really well established. Yes. Uh, if you went to get the fourth jhana upon that set upon leaving the fourth jhana, is there a particular practice that you would recommend doing at that point? You mean like you're coming out in concentration? Well, ask yourself, you know, which is the first defilement that's going to come up? <laughs> You've got to be more specific, you know. <laughs> we're, not, we're not dealing with generic defilements, okay? We're, we're dealing with specific defilements, okay? When am I... But also, but that's that's not really all that bad. Then it's when okay, when we're agreed and it comes or agreed or version delusion comes up. Okay, why did you go there? And this is a really good time to see, as I said, when things start and what the allure is. Why do you go for that? Here you have just a really nice experience. All of a sudden, oh, you know, I go for pizza. And now. <laughs> Okay, you're coming out and you're going to ask yourself, what is the first kind of defilement that's going to come through my mind and that I go for? That's judgment. Okay, why did you go for judgment? Ask yourself, you know, what sparked that? What is that? Because that's where you're going to see the allure of that particular state most clearly. We're talking about when you're coming out. Then your mind has been really settled, and you know, there may be little thoughts kind of nibbling at the edges, but you're not really interested in them. But then when you leave, you you go for something. Why did you go there? I mean, your thought first thought is, I got to go to the bathroom. That doesn't count as a defilement, okay? <laughs> <laughs> But if something else comes up and you start thinking, oh, so-and-so you know, shouldn't be doing this and whatever, you're getting back into your old ruts. But the thing is, you've been out of the rut for a while, so you can recognize it when you go back in. And you want to say, why do I go there? And is that the reason why one puts the time into practicing the jhanas? Because that would allow me then to see my ruts more easily? Mm-hmm. Can you just say a few more words about the benefit? Okay, there are lots of benefits. One is, I mean, it really it's a nice place to stay. It's energizing. Have you noticed how you know, monks don't age as much as regular lay people do? <laughs> no, 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 that is a lie. <laughs> Mary, you should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> hey, even in jest, remember? Remember? Got to be more careful. <laughs> it's, you know, it's a good, the mind needs its rest. It's restful for the body. 
Um, so the jhana is for rest. The second is for that it does make you more alert to what's going on. As you come out of the jhana, you see your mind more clearly. It gives you a you know a sense of well-being that you can rely on. That you know, as I was mentioning last night, so many times we go for something unskillful, knowing that it's unskillful, but it gives an immediate pleasure, and the mind is feeling starved. I want to, I want my little hit. Where here's something you can fall. You, you've got this sense of well-being that you don't, so you don't feel so hungry for these things. That's why it's good. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, with the Thai forest Ajans who would deliberately provoke pain, such as Hungamabua, um, was that usually something they did after they were already familiar with jhana so that they had an access to the that they could work with? He did. I mean, he, John Mun apparently had him stay stuck on concentration for eight years, he said. So his concentration was really, really strong. Which is why, you know, if you're going to deal with pain, you know, the duty with regard to pain is to comprehend it. Our normal reaction is either to push it away or to run away from it. And you're not going to be able to just be there with it unless you have a, another place to stay where you feel okay. Yes? Okay, well, basically, right concentration, you can you can gain any of the noble attainments from any of the levels of jhana. Now, it doesn't mean that we say, why bother with all the higher jhanas? I can attain it from the lower jhana. In let's say, in theory, it's attainable from the first jhana, but it requires an awful lot of discernment. Most people have to get into deeper levels before they can begin to see. Oh, this is how my mind fabricates this particular issue or creates this particular state of becoming. And so what you do is you just try to get the mind as still as you can. And the problem is if you just get the mind still and you don't do any discernment work, that will begin to disintegrate after a while. And so you have to learn how to, how, how do I do get the mind in as really still and then start learning to ask the questions that will start giving rise to insight into my particular defilements. So it's, I mean, you can't equate any of these jhanas with a particular noble attainment. Mm -hmm. It's the path. And some people walk to the path and they get to the end and they don't make the last step. Some people—it really varies from person to person. Some people are faster than others. You know, depending on what your practice in the past has been. But you know, we come here. We have no idea how many lifetimes we've been practicing, right? I mean, John Fuang, when he, he taught in Bangkok. It was really fascinating watching him teach. He'd be invited to Bangkok to teach. And these lay people would come in, and some of them would come regularly. So people would be working every day, and then during their lunch break they would come and meditate with him, or after work they'd come and meditate with him. And every now and then you get this person showing up. And John Fuang's way of teaching people was he'd give you the, the John Lee seven steps, and then sit you, sit you down and have you meditate. And it, Everyone, after all, was really convinced that he could read people's minds very clearly. 
because, you, know, you know, say that Greg was sitting there and all of a sudden he had this vision. He said, oh, Greg, what's happening in your meditation right now? Well, I just had this vision. Okay, this is what you do with that vision. Which, of course, every belt in the room is all ears to hear about Greg's vision, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and so there'd occasionally be somebody come in and, you know, she would be, you know, mind settle down really quickly. It was very easy. And so oh, this is child's play. She'd leave. <laughs> Other people, they're just struggling and struggling and struggling, and you know, they take a long time. So there's, there's a huge variety. And watching him teach, I began to realize okay, that you can't give you know, sort of a one-size-fits-all teaching. That different people will have different, you know, different weird things happening in their meditation as they begin to settle down. Some people, and it depends on your past karma, what kind of things. If you have a lot of visions, that's actually an obstacle. I mean, in the beginning, it's... It's like fun. I get to turn on my TV and watch what's going on. And sometimes the John Fung would have people play with that for a bit, but then he'd say, okay, now we've got to get serious. And okay, put that aside and focus back on your breath and focus on trying to gain some discernment from your breath. You yeah, some people would have visions, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, no, just you know, seeing, their, seeing their parts of their body, seeing what someone else is thinking, past life memories, that kind of stuff. You play with it, and the Buddha said, okay, enough play, and then the Buddha, John Fung was like, enough playing around, let's work on it. Some people have these weird sensations coming up in their bodies that you'd have to learn how to deal with. So it's like people coming in to this from all sorts of different directions, and he was okay, this person has to go this direction, that person has to go that direction. And so he was kind of leading them in. When they got to the point in the fourth jhana, okay, where well, their breath has stopped, then it seemed like everybody was falling into line. It was the, 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 it progressed pretty, in a pretty standard way. Yeah, you work, work on it, yeah. Yes. Because that's what you're doing in the meditation. You can't do insight. I mean, all these insight techniques that you hear about, they're basically types of concentration practice, where they're asking, you, they're asking maybe a little bit of insight goes into it. It's basically getting the mind to focus in a particular way. The real insights that come in say, oh, you see this defilement, you see why you went for it, you see why it was stupid, you drop it. That's going to come as a result of what you're doing. You can't sit down and say, I'm going to tackle greed today, and you know, no. So I'm going to do jhana today, and maybe something will come up, I'll gain some understanding into greed. But the, what I'm doing is I'm doing the jhana practice. Because as the Buddha said, it requires some insight and some tranquility to get the mind into jhana, once you've got the mind into Johnny, both your tranquility and your insight get better. But as John Fung used to say, people come into the meditation and people think too much. There are two kinds of people, he said, that come to meditation. The people who think too much, the people who don't think enough. <laughs> Just right doesn't exist, you know. <laughs> For the people who think too much, he kept emphasizing, still the mind down, still the mind down. Because as he said, once they get the mind really still, they have this innate curiosity or this habitual curiosity now they're going to start asking questions about what's going on the other people they, they just want to get their mind still they, and then it's easy for them to get the mind still and so he that's when you have to ask them get them to ask questions like what? okay okay you know when your mind is still like this is it really totally still is there something going on in there A sensation, but okay. But is there an activity of the mind that's disturbing? Can you drop that activity? Learn how to analyze your mind. Yeah, there's a wanting or not wanting that sensation. 
Okay. Okay, in some in some sensations the Buddha says it's perfectly fine to want more of them. If I want more of this, what's the result? Not all wanting is bad. Yes. Can I ask a question about a meditation sensation that isn't about the Thomas? Mm -hmm. um, I was talking with a friend of mine and we were sort of laughing about how sometimes when we're sitting we have the distinct sense that we're being pushed, pushed mm -hmm. and it almost feels like we're going to tip over. Mm -hmm. Have you ever opened your eyes during that time? No, that's the first thing you should do. I mean, are you actually being pushed over, or is it some, you know, discombobulation in your inner sense of your body? Because sometimes you think, I feel like I'm leaning way over. You open your eyes and you're standing straight up. That's actually one of the signs of rapture, as your sense of your body starts getting distorted. Like you feel like your your body fills the whole room, or it's a little tiny, tiny thing, or you're missing a part of the body. There was one time I was sitting when John, in Bangkok when John Fung was teaching there, and the, I felt like I was just an enormous head with no body. And as we came out of the group came out of meditation, there was this woman who was sitting just a couple of feet away from me, and she she spoke up first and she said, "I feel like I'm just a body with no head." Okay, because sometimes that's your breath energy. Something's been released, and now it was, you know, it was, it was held captive, or it was pushing against something, but it was being, you know, not released. And suddenly it's released here, and then it goes up and meets the next obstacle, and it feels like it's pushing around. And so you ask, well, is there energy, any, any energy on my right side that could push me back the other way? Mm -hmm. It's one of the possible manifestations of rapture. Ignore it essentially? Yeah, you stay with the breath. And the thing with these, since the, anything that has to do with rapture, you don't focus on the manifestation of rapture. Like some people, they find their body moving back and forth. Don't encourage it, but don't try to stop it. It'll, it'll settle out on its own. I knew this one nun one time. She'd go, mm, 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 mm. she'd come out and Did you see? Did you see? That was my rapture. <laughs> That's the wrong attitude. What's the cause of that? Just, you know, the energy is beginning to move around in the body and it's doing things that it hadn't done as you, as you go through your normal life. As we're going through using our bodies in, in everyday activities, we have a clear sense of where the body is. But when you close your eyes, your sense of the body doesn't have any frame of reference. And some people have a very strong sense of you know, where their body is, and it takes a while for that to begin to dissolve. Other people, it goes pretty quickly. In reality, we are filling the room right now. Yeah, we could be filling the room right now. Yeah. The question is, as you're using your body, you have, to, you have to have some clear sense of the body as you use it. But when you stop using it, then that kind of blurs. And this this is one of the aspects of becoming that we might we might get to. 
before we, before we leave to them. <laughs> Which is that you know there's there's the world out there, but your awareness of that particular world in your in your mind at that particular point is focused on things that are relevant to your desire, and everything else just kind of gets blurred into the background. There was a science fiction story I read one time when I was younger. It was about this um, teletransporting um, machine that they were working on. And they had one on the Earth and one on the Moon, and they were trying to teletransport things back and forth. And they discovered the problem was that the skeleton would come later than the rest of the body. <laughs> it would eventually catch up, but eventually it took a little bit longer, you know. And so you'd have, you know, say, you'd send a, you know, send a rabbit from the Earth to the Moon. Well, they have this bowl to receive it, <laughs> and then this this little ooze of rabbit would come into the bowl, <laughs> and it would sort of lie in the bowl for a while. But it wouldn't lie just still, you know, it would kind of try to get out of the bowl. And it would kind of form itself into different ways, trying to ooze out of the bowl. And, and it would try to recreate you know, what, it, what its paws were like, and, and then finally the, the skeleton would come and it would be okay. And I always think about this, and when you're sitting in meditation, it's like you're this bowl of rabbit, you know. <laughs> it's very in, ill-defined, you know. Yeah, I feel ooze. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what's what, what's it's you. <laughs> uh, uh, so sometimes when I meditate, I'll get this like really warm sensation that holds my hands, and sometimes will travel up my arms, mm-hmm. and it's not painful, but it's not comfortable. Mm-hmm. Does that just mean ignore, or should I try? To For the time being, I'd say ignore it. You had this question about what you do with the fourth jhana. One of the things that John Fuang would have his students look at, once the breath is still, let's look at the other elements in the body. And the first one to go to was warmth. Where in the body is, are the warmest spots? Focus your attention there. And then think of that warmth filling the whole body. And then if you're feeling it's too hot, okay, where are the cool spots in the body? That's your water. Focus there. Spread the coolness. Then where are the solid parts of the body? Can you make the whole body feel really, really solid? And you begin to realize that your sense of the body has a lot to do with the perception that you're applying. And when you've been playing with the elements that way, then he would say, okay, now think of everything being like Goldilocks, just right. Not too warm, not too cold, not too heavy, not too light. And you're, you're, you're seeing the power of perception. Which is a, which is a useful useful insight that a lot of times your trouble the troubles you have with certain issues are the perceptions you have around them, and if you change the perception, the problem goes away. Useful insight, and also I mean it's good for as you're going through the day. You're, you're living in Portland, you need more warmth, you know, right? Except for July and August. <laughs> okay, well, okay, where's my warmth in my body right now? Focus there. Or if you're feeling really lightheaded, okay, where is the solid part of my body? If you're feeling depressed and down, okay, where's the energizing part that comes from the breath? You can use that perception to deal with the body. But not coolness. Except, of course, you drink something cool. But I mean, you could, it, it, why, why buy that stuff when you can perceive your body in a different way? And it's, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's nicer, mm-hmm. cheaper.
Well, the body does need some food, come on. <laughs> but there are, I mean, some people, John Lee was one of those people who could tap into these other elements, he said, that were kind of out there in the universe that you could tap into. Sometimes when he was not really, really well fed, he could actually get some energy from outside. But that's, that's kind of an individual matter. Yes? Of course, there's going to be striving. So it, it requires focus and effort, but how do you allow the striving to knock off enough to just let, let yourself move? Okay, there's going to be some striving, as, but as you get more skillful at it, there's the, the conscious effort becomes less. Then you begin to realize okay, what seemed to you to be natural was simply habitual. You're making new habits. So you, you want it so that you, you're default mode is full body awareness. That you can depend on that. And then because then you create the state of mind from which you can observe what the mind is doing much more clearly. You might as well get into the topic of becoming right now because that's because <laughs> as the Buddha said, it's our desires that lead to becoming, those are the problem. So how are you going to learn about becoming? you create a really good becoming from which you can observe other forms of becoming. So getting the mind into jhana is a kind of becoming. Now the word becoming means basically you take on an identity within a particular world of experience. This can be on your sort of imaginary level, or it's becoming this, the big becoming we have out here is just the fact that you're in the human realm right now. That's also a kind of becoming. And this bigger becoming comes from the becomings that you had in your mind before you were born. You had certain becomings that were found satisfaction. Hmm, a human life is a really neat, neat life. You get to, you know, especially in the 20, 20, 21st century, you get to play with computers, you get to play with iPhones. This is where I want to do, you know. And you, you didn't check the fine, fine print. <laughs> but here you are. But it was based on the mind was, going, was interested in that kind of pleasure, interested in that kind of desire. And it had also the you know the good karma to be born as a human being. So this is how this is where you are in this larger state of becoming. As you arrive here, you find that your mind is still creating more states of becoming. You can imagine yourself going here, doing this, being there, being here, based on a desire. You know, I, you know, if you want, say, well, let's take pizza again. Okay, you want a pizza? Okay, in your mind, th what's relevant in that in that desire? Okay, is you the person who wants to enjoy the pizza, and you, the person who can attain the pizza. You've got the money, you've got the car, you've got the whatever that you need in order to go down to the pizza store and get the pizza. So you've got two senses of self right there. You've got the self as the producer or provider, and then the self as the consumer. And then there's the world that's relevant to that which other, either things that help you get the pizza or get in the way of getting the pizza. So that's your world. Now, even as you're going through the human world, and actually it's not just on the imaginary level, you're going down there. The things that are relevant are the things you notice related to your desires. And walking down to the pizza store, you may notice you know, there's a sign for this over here, or there's something over there. A little bit of becoming will develop around that. But you're in the larger becoming of, I'm going to the pizza store. As you're going to the pizza store, the world around you that's 
irrelevant to the pizza, that's neither getting in the way or helping you, you're not even thinking about it. So that, you know, even though we're all sitting here in the same room, we're all in different states of becoming right now. And the Buddha said, it's because we're constantly trying to, you know, have desires that lead to becoming that we suffer, because every becoming is going to be stressful and constant, not self. It's going to fall apart. And so how do you observe that? Well, you put the mind into the state of becoming, which is jhana. In other words, okay, you're going to have it, the whole body, and that's it, putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. Now this is your world, and you are the meditator, creating this state. And the advantage of this is that it's a much more subtle pleasure and a much more subtle desire, and it puts you in a position where you can see other states of becoming happening. Then you begin to understand, okay, this is the process by which I cause myself suffering. So you use this state of becoming to detach yourself from other states of becoming. And when you've taken care of everything else, okay, this is the last thing you let go of. Yes? Did that bring the mind for me a little bit? Um, coming out of a good six and, and, and having been to a very calm place and a clear place, sometimes I feel uh, indifferent. Or that doesn't matter. When I come out, I'm back in the data. Things come to me almost like a judgment. Oh, that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And so, if I stay with this, I guess I find out what does matter. Mm -hmm. I have to make a decision mm -hmm. on things. I mean, that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Oh, that matters. Mm -hmm. So the cleansing or the calming is going to help me seek more clear what matters. Yeah, exactly. What's worth the effort? Because this is this is where we. This is how we decide on different becomings. Is it worth the effort to do that? And all too often our, our powers of judgment are really bad. You know, the example I like to give is I go to Zion National Park once a year, and from San Diego means I have to go through Las, Las Vegas. And so I get to see the signs going to Las Vegas. And one of the best ones is 93% payback rate. <laughs> They're telling you up front, you give us a dollar, we'll give you 93 cents back. You know? <laughs> and people still go. Mm -hmm. and all kinds of things like that in life. We're really, really poor judges of what's worth the effort, what's not. And so we're trying to develop a better, you know, put ourselves in a position where we can judge that a lot better than we had before. I had another example in mind. What was it? Two things come to mind. One is I've been trying to learn French. You know, I teach every other year. I go I go to France to teach, and part of my mind says this is not worth it. I mean, the French people like it when you try, and they make fun of you when you try, but they like it. <laughs> And I, and I keep thinking, if I really wanted to get good at French, I remember how, how much energy I had to go into getting good at Thai. And I just can't put that energy in. It's not worth it, which is stymieing my efforts to you know, pick up French. But I realized, okay, if I put in all that energy, there are a lot of things just would not get done in my life. I guess, okay, this has to go by the boards. There's a... Um, 
story from the life of Berlioz, the composer. He woke up one morning and realized he had a dream in which he had composed a symphony in A minor. And he said, and, and he had all the themes and everything were in his head. And the question came to him, gee, if I, set, if I actually composed this symphony, how long would it take? Because it was going to take a couple months out of his life. He said, can I do that? He finally said, it's not worth it. He had too many other things happening in his life. The next night, the same dream came back and same symphony. He woke up the next night and said, I've got to stop this. I just can't go there. Now, from my point of view, it would have been better for, you know, for the rest of the world if he had actually dropped whatever it was and composed a symphony. But from his point of view, it just wasn't worth the effort. And there's, a, you know, there's that part of our mind that goes through this calculation all the time. Is it worth it? Is it not? And I was reading, they were, they were basically saying for teenagers, it's, this is the undeveloped part of the mind. <laughs> it's the last part that you know, gets growing. But as meditators, we find that okay, it has to be developed even further than your normal, normal adult late rate. Yes. Just a little while ago, when you were talking about working with the elements, mm -hmm. the warmth and the solidity, and, um, it seemed to me like that would really be worth it upon the moment of death. Yeah, I've told you the story about the woman in the, in the house, the house on fire. Yeah, well, the one she, you know, she was meditating one night, and this voice came to her, said she was going to die, and so she ended up finding, okay, I'll hang out in space. I can't stay in my body; I'll just hang out in space. Good place to be. So you don't have to suffer so much. Yes. That's just the breath energy. Adjusting. Okay, let's move on. When do we passage five? We've already done passage six. Passage seven. Do we want to do the formal states? Let's talk about them a bit. Notice that the Buddha does not call them jhanas. They're called formlessnesses. <laughs> it's an unusual word in Pali, but he, he doesn't he doesn't call he doesn't call them arupa jhanas or formless jhanas. And as we mentioned last night, it is possible to get into these formless states without going through the first four jhanas. But the Buddha doesn't recommend it because when you're going through the form the four, four jhanas, you're getting a very strong sense of how your perceptions and how your breath affect your state of mind. And how your mind states, mind states affect your breath and your perceptions. You begin to see the interactions among the different ways you fabricate things, which is a lot of the insight that you're going to get from these, these, this practice. Now, when you get into the fourth jhana, as I said, the breath stops. And when a John Fung would have people work with the four elements, he would say, okay, get all the elements together. And then once everything is balanced, you'll begin to notice that the, sort of the edges of your sense of your body, are beginning to dissolve away. There's no clear line between you and what's outside of the body. And it's almost like your body is this kind of cloud of little sensation drops. And so you say, okay, instead of focusing on the sensation drops, I'm going to focus on the space between the drops. And just hold that perception in mind, the space that it permeates these things. And you begin to realize, okay, there's nothing that gets in the way. 
And so you can spread that sense of space out, and it goes out in all directions. That gets you into the sense of infinite space, or unbounded space. And you will find there are times before you actually hit the point where you're ready for this, that there will be times when everything seems to be space. But your powers of mindfulness are not strong enough to keep you there, to kind of flip in and out. Because when you're dealing with the breath, even if the perception of breath drops for a moment, the breath is still there. And that kind of reminds you, oh, that's, this is where I'm supposed to be focused. But when you're focusing on space, there's no particular sensation that's going to confirm that. And so it's just holding on to the perception that keeps you there. So you have to be able to hold on to that one perception really continuously for, this, for your, to be able to stay in this state. So you stay there for a while. And as the Buddha says in other, other passages, you enjoy it and you get used to it. And then you say, okay, what is it that knows the space? And there'll be this sense of just knowing, 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 or awareness, awareness, awareness. You focus on that perception. And again, this seems to fill everything. No matter what comes up, it's just, okay, there is a knowing of that, whatever it is. So you're not focusing on the specific things you know, but you're focused on just the sense of awareness that fills everything. And you hold on to that perception. And then you realize okay, it's that perception is, is, is the thing that's keeping the mind in a state of oneness. So you drop that, the oneness of that perception. And there's a sense of nothing. And you hold out with that sense of nothing for a while. And then finally that begins to fade and you get to this point where you, there's a state of concentration. That you, you, know, you know the state, but you don't have a label for it. You kind of recognize it, but you don't have a specific label to say what it is. And that's the state of neither perception or non-perception. And then finally, perception and feeling just stop. There's a sense of awareness, but there are no specific perceptions and no specific feelings in that state. And when you come out of that, often... Many times in the canon they will say that you will see with discernment how fabrication starts up again, and you can drop it, and then you can get one of the noble attainments. But it's not always going to happen. Some people get to the cessation of perception of feeling, and they come out of it, and they just come out of it, and that's it. These are the formless states that you can get into. Any questions on any of those? Okay, usually come out of the fourth jhana to do this. Now, there, the Buddha mentions there are other ways you get to these states that don't involve the fourth jhanas. In fact, that's probably how he first got into those states when he was studying with his other teachers. But when he was teaching his students, he said, <clears throat> go this way, through the jhanas. Because it, it, it gets you much more solidly based. And also, as you go through the jhanas, you're beginning to learn about that process of fabrication, which is what you're trying to get insight into. And John Lee has a great analogy for this. He says, when you're working in the, in the jhanas, it's like you're, you've got a job and you're getting a wage. When in the foremost jhanas, you're living off a pension. <clears throat> you just kind of hang out. It's very, very calm, very easy. Not, not, not much effort is required, but it's not going to last. It, 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 you don't gain energy from it. It's just rest.
question. In that formless state, there is uh, an awareness. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. state mm -hmm. that uh, you can just mention. Mm -hmm. So that, what, what is that in, in that perceives the formless state? It's just, it's just an awareness. It's consciousness. You hang out there, and then you analyze. Okay, what's what's going on here? How am I? Is there still some stress in this state? And there is. The fact that you've got to maintain that perception. Are you still clinging to something? You're clinging to the equanimity. Now you can analyze these states up to the state of nothingness. States beyond that, you cannot analyze them while you're in them. But you can think, you can recall, okay, as you're coming out, you begin to know, so this is how the process of fabrication starts up again. That can be an insight right there. One more thing. Mm -hmm. how is, what is the relationship of, of love in this process? Totally unrelated. <laughs> Why do you want to drag love into this? Good Lord. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, you can love you can love it. Okay, why do you have to love yourself? You can be connected without loving. Loving, loving that is in like Okay, well, the, you've, you've associated that feeling with love, but here's how, here's how you get that feeling without having to have that association. Because okay. mm -hmm. the Buddha doesn't trust love. You know, the word that's translated as loving-kindness is not loving-kindness. It's goodwill. The, other, the word for love is bema, as in bema children. Her name actually means love. And, his, and the Buddhist problem with love, he says, it is partial. There are people you love, and then because you love certain people, there are other people who will treat them nicely. Okay, you're going to love those people too. Well, that's 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 goodwill. <laughs> yeah, love by its nature is partial. And you know, you, and then if you there's somebody you love, but someone else mistreats that person, you're going to hate that person. Okay. Then there's somebody you hate. It's not happiness. It's just okay. These these come into your these come into your sphere of these are the people I love. But then okay, there will be people who mistreat the people you love, right? Just the fact that you so you're going to hate those people. Anybody mistreats your son. Okay. Myself. Or myself, yeah. But then there are, okay, there are people that you hate, and someone else comes along and treats that person nicely, you're going to hate that person too. Someone along comes along and mistreats the people you hate, you're going to love that person. <laughs> so you can see how you know, unreliable these emotions are. Okay, well, well, love and well-being are two different things. So in that state of spaciousness, I felt, 
Okay, well, that's, that's part of the path. That's the part of the path that gives you energy. And this is one of the reasons, though, the fact that we, I say, this is, what I've, this is what I've always been looking for. People get stuck there. They're perfectly content to stay there. And that's what you're suggesting. Well, to get, but not all, you know, forever. Come on. <laughs> you get there, and then you use it to get insight. Yeah, which, which is all the other things that you're doing in order to find the state of well-being that are not all that skillful. You begin to see, oh, this, this, is, this doesn't measure up to what I found here. And so you learn how to let go of those things. You begin to say, These, this is where you're in a better position to make that value judgment. It's not worth the effort. And then we've taken care of everything else. And you can turn around and look at this and say, okay, there's still some effort involved here. The Buddha says there's, some, there's, there's a state of happiness where there's no effort that has to be made at all. Wouldn't that be nice? Right. So everything else is just a poor strategy to, to get, get this get sensible being. being. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's everything. Everything in this world is mm -hmm. a poor strategy. More or less poor, yeah, but they're they're not as good as this. Yes. Um, after this section with Ashan Lee, then you have your own from um, from uh, keeping breath in mind, mm. and on the fourth jhana in that section, um, you said equanimity and singleness are preoccupation in the four jhanas. How can focus is always differential. What is singleness of It means that you're focused on one object. I thought there wasn't focus by the fourth Okay, in other words, you're, you're, you're not thinking about anything else. You're, there's no perception of anything else but breath. That's, that's the object on which the mind... The, the word focus here is a bad one because it makes us think there's one point. But this is the, this is the one object that you're holding in mind. But it's not single-minded. It's, well, it's, it's single-minded in the sense that it's just one object. And that isn't John Lee, it's not me. Oh. Yeah. Okay. There's nothing of me in here except for the translator. <laughs> it's just John Lee. Mine is within, with each and every breath. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh no! This at the fourth jhana, you still have a sense of the body. Yeah, these are the formless jhanas where there's no sense of the body. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. More stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's pushing this on you. <laughs> it's there to re-wreck us. Some people, they get to these states and they say, this must be it. You know, this, must be, this must be nirvana. And, the, and the, the fact that the Buddha described it as a state of concentration and reminds you, okay, watch out for this. It seems very peaceful, very clear. There are other states of concentration that I don't even mention in this. One is that it's called the cessation of perception or the state of non-perception where you totally blank out. <laughs> 
but there's enough awareness to know that you haven't you know, totally lost consciousness, but they're not aware of anything at all. And the passage of time goes really fast. You can sit and, you know, for a couple hours and you go in and come out and it's like, you know, where, you know, where was I? And there are some people who think that's nirvana. But it's not, no. Because you, know, it's, you get in there through the power of your intent. It's just that you're not really aware. And it's, 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 it's basically it's wrong concentration. Because there's no way you can be alert to anything in that state. And the, I've, my experience with it is that when I first hit it, I was looking after John Fuang when he was sick. We were staying at Watasokaram at the same time, and he insisted that in addition to looking after him, I also had to go through the whole group schedule, which included at least one long group meditation a day, sometimes two, sometimes three. And at Watasokaram, they would have a roster of monks who would give Dharma talks, 14 different monks over a course of two weeks. And out of those 14 monks, maybe two or three could give good Dharma talks, and the rest were just god-awful. <laughs> <laughs> and you're sitting there, and I was really tired, because looking after John Fung, sometimes I'd get two hours of sleep at night, sometimes you know one. I was really, really tired. And so when you're sitting down to meditate, you don't want to have to hear a lousy Dharma talk. You just, I just, just want to rest. And I found myself <clears throat> going into this state. Which just makes me curious about some of those meditation, you know, retreats where they allow you only a few hours of sleep per night, and you know, the meditation method is just note, 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 whatever comes up. Your mind is going to rebel, and it goes into this, and then they say it's nirvana. So, so when I came out, and again, it was like it would, you would sit for two hours there, and it was you know you, it's, the meditation session started. Before I knew it, it was it was done. You know, the, the John Fuang's rule is if you asked him about what's happening in your meditation, it had to happen at least twice or three times before he'd be willing to listen to it. Just, you know, if you, you found it coming back again, then you could ask him. And so it happened again the next night. So that's when I asked him about it. And his first question was, did you like it? And part of me did, but when I came out, I felt kind of a little groggy. And, so, and they said, good, that you don't like that you don't, because some people think it's nirvana. So it's good to know these things are not. Then he told me about his experience with that, and apparently he was pretty good at it. <laughs> and he'd gone in for a kidney operation one time. They had to take out one of his kidneys. He didn't trust the anesthesiologist, because you know you hear these stories of people who wake up in the middle of the operation and they can't say anything. You know? um, so he put himself in this state. And, then he, and you can time it. I'm going to stay here for a couple hours, and boom, you come out. And then he found himself, he came out and he was being wheeled back into the operation room. It turned out they'd sewed him up wrong. And so they're going to take him in and reoperate. So he put himself back in. But he said, you know, in terms of gaining any insight, there's nothing there. So when you read about these people who say, John has a total blanking out, this is what they're going for. Or the ones who say, Nirvana, I mean, they're like, I don't want to name names, but there are people who say, okay, Nirvana is nothing, there's nothing there. This is what they're hitting, and then they're interpreting that as a as a transcendent state. The problem was I found out I actually did like it. <laughs> yeah, you're going to sit for you know, especially when you have enforced sittings. There was one time we were supposed to have an all night sit at the monastery. Boom, just go right out. <laughs> and what the problem for me though was I got so every time I was listening to Dharma talk, boom, I was out. And I <laughs> 
And it was at, about this time that Lumpur Put was becoming famous. And someone came and brought a Lumpur Put tape to the monastery one time. So he's a really great mon monk who's got really great Dharma talks. Let's listen to his Dharma talks. So we put it on the machine. I was out until the, the tape machine clicked, you know, the, the button. Remember those old days where the cassette tapes, the button would go out. The button came out, it was back, I was back again. It wasn't that a great Dharma talk? I don't know, I wasn't there. <laughs> and what finally got me out of this was um, one night, my, my job at Bodhisattvaram, when, when I was meditating there, was to be in charge of the, um, was it the, the amplifier. Because some of the monks like to turn the amplifier way up, and you would have this boom, 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 going through the whole room. So I, I would you know, try to keep it just at the right level. And so I set the amplifier, and I was sitting right in front of the seat. And the monk who got up there was just visiting a John. He must have sensed what was going on. And so the very first line in his Dharma talk was, there some people get stuck in the state of non-perception. I was all ears for that Dharma talk. <laughs> and he says, it's, you know, it's, it's a nice place to hang out, but when you, when you die, you go to the, the, the Brahma level of non-perception. And when you return from that, you are just totally bonkers because you've, you've been suppressing your mind for so long. So, mm, maybe I better stop this. <laughs> and so then I, that kind of gradually faded away. Yeah. Question? Um, in one of the jhanas, it talked about your ability, once you reach that jhana, to look at past lives. Uh, have you had that experience? No. This is something only it happens to a few people depending on their karma. It's not automatic. I mean, there's one, one skill that's important. We can get this, the, the developments of con concentration, which is passage number eight. Do we have any questions on what we've discussed so far before we go to the next passage? Yes? Is it possible to give one of these, or is it, is it, is it, is it possible to like halfway do this? Like, like you can still perceive the body and then but everything else has one of these qualities, like of the formlessness, like I can, I can sense my body, but there's nothing out there. Is that possible? Well, that wouldn't be a form. As long as there's a sense of the body, you're not in a formless state. Okay, these are the uses of concentration. These are the four things you can do with concentration. One is there's a development of concentration. Look at the second paragraph in that passage. That when developed and pursued leads to a pleasant abiding in the here and now. That's a case where a monk remains, enters and remains in the four jhanas. Okay, in other words, you, this is a good place to hang out when you're feeling tired, when you're feeling lack of energy, when you're feeling a need for the mind to rest. This is a good place to go. Good place to hang out. You get energized, you get refreshed. And as I said, this is nothing to be you know, worried about getting attached to. I mean, you have your choice. You're either going to be attached to this or you're going to be attached to sensuality. Which is worse? And people don't kill, even in the jhana wars, people don't kill one another over jhana. <laughs> but sensuality, okay, people kill over sensuality. They steal, they lie, they have illicit sex, they drink, you know, because of sensuality. So if you're going to be attached to a pleasure, be attached to this one. And as I said, because you have this level of pleasure, you, you can look at other ways of looking for pleasure, and you find that they're, they're lacking. They're, they're not worth the effort. And that, that helps you, especially if they're unskillful ways of looking for pleasure, it helps you peel away your unskillful habits.
because you got something better. I mean, it's, it's the same technique as when you're overcoming any addiction. You've got to give the person some alternative pleasure so they don't go immediately for the old addiction. So this, this is your alternative. Okay, the development of concentration that leads to the attainment of knowledge and vision. Okay, this is the, these are the psychic powers, like the ones you're talking about. Uh, and this is when you gain a sense of light that fills the body. And then in that light, you may start seeing some of these things. Now the problem is, I noticed with my teacher dealing with some students, that there are some people who would start getting visions like this in the meditation, and he would basically say, let it go, don't go there. Other people would have a pursue. I guess some people he felt that they were getting more accurate information than others. And this is one of the things you have to watch out for in these kinds of things, is that just because a vision appears, you can't trust everything that comes up in concentration. And it's, you know, it's more likely to be trustworthy, but not necessarily 100% trustworthy. And I've known some of the John Fuhring students who started going astray because they wouldn't listen to him when he said, okay, stop, and you stop playing around. It's time to grow up. But you can gain some different kinds of knowledge and different kinds of power. Um, John Lee apparently had the full, full range, except he couldn't make himself levitate. <laughs> He could make other people levitate, but he couldn't levitate himself. And John Fung told the story one time. A group of them, a group of monks had gone out to a UTI, which in back of those days, it's, it's, it's a big tourist spot now, but back in those days nobody was going there. And so you could actually, as a monk, you could camp out in the grounds of the old, old palace. They had these enormous putsa trees. Putsa is a kind of, it's like a little tiny apple. The trees are huge, and they, the, the, the limbs spread out very, very far. And so they were spent one night meditating under a putsa tree, and they brought along this kid who was about 11 or 12 years old to fix rice for the monks. And so John Lee had the monks all sit in a circle, and then he put the kid in the middle, and then they hung a rope down from the, from the branch. And John Lee said, okay, now we're going to make you levitate. And John Funk talked to himself, and he said, it's not we are going to make him levitate, you're going to make him levitate. But he didn't say anything. And so... Um, they said, the rope is there in case you find yourself actually going off the ground and it scares you, just hold on to the rope. So they're meditating, sure enough, oh, about a good two or three feet off the ground. And that's when he realized he was off the ground and thought startled him so much that he forgot about the rope and just fell. <clears throat> and then he couldn't sit down for the next couple of days. <laughs> it hurt himself so bad. <laughs> so those are fun and games. <laughs> The positive use you can get from some of these things is, um, like you see your previous lifetimes, you begin to realize, oh my gosh, this has been going on and on and on and on for a long time. <coughs> it would, wouldn't it be good just to put an end to it. Um. <coughs> so. Any questions about those? One thing I like about the canon's treatment of these psychic powers is it tends to treat them with humor, as it's nothing to take all that seriously. Um, one of my favorite passages is there's a group of monks, and the junior most group of the monks 
apparently had quite a few psychic powers up his sleeve. And so one day they were invited for a meal. And on the way back, it was, it was a large meal, and they're kind of just got a little bit too much food. And on top of that, it's hot. And they felt and this, the, the description of the canon is that as they walked along, they felt like they were melting. And so the junior monk says to the senior monk, wouldn't it be nice if a cloud came up to obscure the sun and there was a very light rain to cool things down? And the senior monk said, yeah, that would be very nice. All of a sudden, boom, this cloud comes up and there's a light rain to cool the monks off. And they get back to the monastery, and um, the young young monk says, "Is that enough?" And the senior monk says, "Thank you very much. That was very nice of you." <laughs> but the, the lay person who had given the meal was following behind the monks. He saw this, and so after the monks have gone back to the huts, he goes to the youngest monk. He says, "I saw what you did. Can you do something else?" And the monk looks at him. He says, "Okay, I'll take off your upper robe, put it on my, the porch of my hut, get a pile of grass, put it on the robe, and step back." And so the lay person does that, and then the monk goes into the into the hut, closes the door, and all of a sudden this flame comes out from the cracks around the door, consumes the grass, but doesn't touch the cloth. And so he comes out afterwards, and the, the lay person is shaking off the robe, and his, his hair standing on end. And the, the monk says, "Is that enough?" <laughs> and the lay person says, "That's plenty enough. And if you want to stay here, I'll be happy to provide you with food, clothing, shelter." And the monk says, that's very nice of you to say that. And then after the live person goes, the monk packs up his stuff and he leaves. He knows, he knows this is a dangerous place to stay. So, so we have to watch out for these psychic powers. And John Lee's complaint was people would come and listen to his Dharma talks and he'd talk about the Four Noble Truths and the Five Hindrances. And they go out and they would buy four and five on the lottery <laughs> and win. <laughs> he says, they're coming, they're all listening for it, there's the numbers, you know, not the Dharma. So, so, so. Okay, the next development of concentration is from mindfulness and alertness. Okay, you want to be able to see things as they're arising and passing away. You want to be able to remember lessons you've learned from the past. Concentration helps you with that. The steadier in the mind, the more quickly you will see things as they arise. If you're trying to catch the allure, it's the fact that you developed your powers of alertness will be you'll be on top of it. So you see, I'm going for this because I like that, or I'm expecting to get this out of that. So you can begin to make that comparison between allure and drawbacks more precisely. That's another one of the advantages. And then the final advantage is that you. There's a practice that leads to the ending of affluence, i.e., your defilements, as you begin to see the five clinging aggregates as they arise. And not only arising, origination means such as form, for example, such as origination of that this is what causes the experience of form, such as its disappearance. The same for feeling, perception, fabrications, and consciousness. And where is a good place to see that? It's in the state of concentration itself, which takes us to passage 10. Suppose that an archer or archer's apprentice were to practice on a straw man or mound of clay, so that after a while he would become able to shoot long distances, to fire accurate shots in rapid succession, and to pierce great, great masses. Okay, that's symbolic for various things. To be able to shoot long distances means that you're able to see that what you're learning about form right now applies to all form, past and future. What you're learning about feelings right now applies to all feelings, past and future. In other words, you see this connection. The, the constancy of this particular insight. 
to fire accurate shots in rapid succession is to see the Four Noble Truths as they're happening, and to pierce great masses means to put an end to ignorance. So, this is how you do that. You enter into the first jhana, rapture and pleasure born of seclusion, accompanied by direct thought and evaluation. You regard whatever phenomena there that are connected with form, feeling, perception, fabrications, and consciousness. Okay, you see that the first step is that you see that this jhana is also made out of the five aggregates. You've got form, which is the breath. If you've been focusing on the breath, that'd be the form, or it could also be just the form of the body. You've got the feeling, which is the feeling of pleasure, suffusing the body. You've got the perception, which is the mental image of the body, the mental image of the breath that you're holding in mind. You've got fabrications, and you direct a thought and evaluation around the breath. And you've got consciousness and the fact that you're aware of all these things. So the five aggregates are right here in the state of concentration. So first you notice that. Then you learn to see them as in constant stressful, a disease, a cancer, an arrow, painful infliction, alien, a disintegration, an emptiness, not self. Okay, this is after you've cut away a lot of your attachments to things outside, and, but you've got this strong attachment to the state of concentration. Now you begin to see even this is in constant stressful, not self. And you can see these various things are fall, these different perceptions fall under one of those three. In constant, of course, in constancy, stress, disease, cancer, and arrow, painful and affliction. Okay, that's under stress. Alien comes under not self. A disintegration, inconstancy, emptiness, not self. And so not self. So so three basically variations on those three perceptions. And it's important to remember that when the Buddha taught these three things, he did not teach them as the three characteristics. If you type in three characteristics into any any CD of the canon, you find only one passage, and it has nothing to do with these three characteristics, and it's another list of three characteristics or something else. The Buddha never calls them characteristics, he calls them perceptions. They're part of a contemplation. You're trying to perceive these things in such a way that you can develop dispassion for them. You apply these perceptions to them. Now, this doesn't mean that these perceptions are false, but you have to remember that the aggregates have their positive side. So it's not the ultimate truth of these things that they are stressful. It's a, but the, if you're going to develop dispassion for them, you've got to focus on the stressful side, on the not-self side. So you apply these perceptions even to your state of jhana. And having done so, <clears throat> you turn your mind away from those phenomena, and having done so, you incline the mind to the property of the deathlessness. Property of deathlessness. This is peace. This is exquisite. The pacification of all fabrications, the relinquishing of all acquisitions, the ending of craving, dispassion, cessation, unbinding. Okay, you finally decide, if I could just stop fabricating even this, that would be better. And if you were successful in not fabricating anything in its place, that would be an opening to unbinding. Staying right there, you either reach the ending of the effluence, i.e. become an arahant, or if not, then through this very Dhamma passion, this Dhamma delight. In other words, you have a delight and passion for the deathless. Hey, this is really cool. Hey, we have this tendency, and remember the word for clinging also means to feed. And what do you imagine? Your first, your first encounter with the deathless. <laughs> you want to feed off it. That pulls you out. But at least you've seen that. You know, there really is something that's deathless, something that's not fabricated at all. 
And you know it's not fabricated because you've been through all these very subtle levels of fabrication. So you recognize fabrication when you see it. Piercing ignorance. Yeah. He says, okay, if, you have, if you're still clinging to the deathless, okay, then you become a non-returner. But it also happens, you can also become a stream enter. Okay, that's how stream entry happens. You have an experience of the deathless and you grasp at it. But you had that moment of non-fabrication. This is when you begin to realize, you know, the Buddha's teaching about karma, where he says it's not just past karma, but it's also your present karma that creates your present experience. This is where you verify that. If you don't fabricate the present, it's not going to be there. Because the deathless is not something you would experience while you're experiencing the six senses. It's something when they go away. And so you step out of time for a bit, and then if there's any clinging, you come back. Well, the nirvana for, for an arahant, the arahant will come back, but they will come back with no clinging. Depending on whatever past karma is still left to kind of work itself out. It's because of this ability to cling to the deathless that the Buddha has that statement about seeing even all phenomena are not self. That would include the deathless. You have to see, okay, I can't even latch on to this. Now, he's not saying there is no self, it's just you have to apply that perception even here so you don't cling to it. So that's the... And that, that, that same analysis or can happen in any levels of the jhana up to the, up to the state of nothingness. So that's one of the ways in which you use concentration in order to gain the insight that liberates you. Questions? Yes? Is there anything automated or kind of accidental about any of that as you progress through the stages, or is it um, even to the very end, at the ultimate point, is it still very intentional and manual? Well, it's, there's, there's, the intention is I'm, I'm trying to go for something that has the least amount of stress. And you get to a point where you realize, okay, here I am in the state of concentration. If I were to leave the concentration, I'd go back to more stress. If I were to stay in the concentration, there would be the stress of staying here. Is another alternative? And then the, the alternative appears, and it comes unintentional. You can't say, "Okay, now we're going to turn on nirvana." Doesn't doesn't work that way. But it's ha posing that question in mind: Is there another alternative? Now, sometimes it happens where you pose that question in mind, you end up going to another state of concentration. But sometimes you're lucky enough. I mean, luck is a bad word. Insightful enough to say, oh, there is this other alternative where there's no fabrication. Like, uh, like a toddler is not going to stumble into a No, 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 no. Because you need, you need to have seen fabrication clearly enough through your practice of concentration so you can recognize it. And your, your sense of what qualifies as stress and what qualifies as well-being is going to get a lot more refined. So that you can, you can say, oh, this really would be a good thing if I could actually stop doing the fabrication. Yes? Um, can you just talk for a bit more about, your, your mentioned before, how the, 
But there is this, there's an awareness. Yeah. The Buddha's image for this is, um, he calls it consciousness without surface. And the analogy he gives, he says, suppose that there was a house that had a window on the east side and walls on the other side. And the sun rose, and so the ray of the sun comes through the window. Where does it land? It lands on the west wall. So suppose you take the rest west wall away. Where would, the, where would the beam land then? And the monk's answer, it would land on the ground. Suppose you take the ground away, it would land on the water. Suppose you take the water away, it wouldn't land. And that's his image. Because there's still the consciousness, but it's not landing anywhere. That's the big difference. Stop the discussion. Oh, yes. saunas, but um, <laughs> you get dehydrated. Um, but I mean, you want to, if you get really good at concentration, you say, can I stay concentrated in a noisier environment? Can I stay concentrated in these other areas? Can you suppose you get ill and they put you in a hospital? I can, I can, you know, it's it's a lousy place to die. You know? You're going beep, 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 beep all the time, and the noise outside, and they've got you know got this awful thing that they've learned how to put in your arm now, where you, you know you can't you can't escape the hospital without you know, doing major harm to yourself by pulling the needle out. Um, and you're stuck there, and you say, I'd still want to be able to be able to do jhana in that in those conditions. So it's good to be able to practice. Okay, in difficult conditions, can you still get the mind focused? Speaking to that, um, you know, thinking about conditions externally, I, I wonder. I'm wondering if you can offer like a warning to putting too much emphasis on just the meditation alone and trying to attain jhana without having a, a lot of heedfulness to sort of what I allow my mind to feed on <laughs> off the cushion. Because I talk to a lot of people. And I've even been there where it's like, oh, I just need to meditate more. I need to practice more. No, it's, I mean, a big part of the practice is sense, um, sense restraint. As you go, as you walk down the street, as you're driving around, as you're turning on the TV or turning on your computer, what are you looking for? And you've got to be very careful about that, because otherwise you're going to just put a lot of garbage into your head. I mean, I mean John Fuang had these students living in Bangkok. I mean, Bangkok is, you know, Portland on steroids, as, as far as as far as distractions, and yet they're still they were able to just let's let's tune that stuff out. Focus on looking after your mind as you go through the day. That's one thing, sense restraint. The other is the precepts, generosity. Those really are important as a foundation. 
There's one point where the Buddha says, if you're a stingy person, you're not going to get into jhana. If you don't hold by the precepts, you can get into jhana, but there's going to be a lot of denial, which is not good for your for your discernment. So it, it would be safe to say that I shouldn't think in terms or of, well, if I get better at, at this, I'll be able to re- renounce this more so or disregard this more so. You've got to learn how to renounce first. Yeah, it's the effort that goes into saying, look, I've really got to stop doing whatever is, is sort of stirring up greed, aversion, and delusion in the mind. And uh, the, our, one of our problems here in the West is we first encounter Buddhism in a denatured environment. It's either in a retreat center or it's in an academic setting or now it's on the Internet. In the old days, you encountered Buddhism because you met people who were practicing. And you know, you, part of what attracted you to those people was that they were good people. And if they were going to take you on as a student, you had to prove yourself worthy of being a student. You had to be, learn how to be a good person, too. Certain qualities like honesty. The Buddha, Buddha, Buddha basically said, bring me someone who is observant and honest, and I'll teach that person the Dharma. Those are the two qualifications. That you're honest about, okay, these are my mistakes, these are where I'm doing things wrong. And they're observant. Did you notice what you're doing? And he'll teach you how to use your powers of observation to get better. But those are two qualities. Those are two character traits that he would, he would look for. And you were also you were also supposed to look for good quality character traits in the teacher. And we've learned now that okay, people can come and teach retreats. You don't know what their lives are like away from the retreat center. But in the old days, you you would be living around the people that you were learning from. And you get to see them on a day-to-day basis. And if you were going to stay with them, they had to feel that you were a good person, too. So it's, there are these qualities of the character you've got to develop as well. Yes? The Buddha said, suppose you could make a deal. You're, for a hundred years, they're going to st- stab you with a hundred spears in the morning. Do you know this? You're shaking your head. Do you know this analogy? Oh, yes. I, I know what you're going to say. Yes. Okay. I didn't want to say it anyway. Yes. <laughs> okay, if, they, if, if you make a deal, okay, they're going to stab you with a hundred spears in the morning, a hundred spears at noon, and a hundred spears in the evening. Three hundred spears per day, every day for a hundred years. Guaranteed you are going to gain awakening at the end of 100 years. It would be a good deal. So 15 years of you know, not seeing Saturday Night Live, <laughs> but you get jhana at the end, it's a good deal. You know? <laughs> it's one of my favorite shows. <laughs> Okay. 
One more passage and we'll be done for the day. Passage 11. The other way that you gain insight is when you leave one state of jhana and you go to, go to the higher jhanas, you begin to realize, oh, I dropped X. So I dropped this level of fabrication, or I dropped this kind of fabrication. So he says the step-by-step cessation of fabrications. When you've attained the first jhana, speech has ceased. When you've attained the second jhana, directed thoughts and evaluation, i.e. verbal fabrications, have ceased. When you've attained the move down to the fourth jhana, in and out breathing, that's bodily fabrication, has ceased. When you move from the fourth jhana to <coughs> infinitude of space, okay, your perception of form has ceased, and so on down the line. So you begin to see these things kind of peeling away. And this is another way in which we just see, oh, these states of mind are fabricated. And the question that comes at the point is, do I want to keep on fabricating them? Or have I had enough? No, it's not that say, well, I'm just going to go back to not practicing concentration at all. I say, I want something better than the concentration. And, and this is one of the ways you begin to see, oh, this is how my mind fabricates things. It puts these things together. And you can kind of separate them out. A John Lee's analogy is taking a rock and you heat it a bit and the tin comes out and you heat it a little bit more and the copper comes out. You heat it a little bit more and the silver comes out. You heat it a little bit more and the gold comes out. Now, if you were to take the rock and you were just trying to chip the tin out or chip the gold out or chip the silver out, it wouldn't work. So you can't just come in and say, okay, I'm going to let go of these fabrications without having really let them separate out on their own. But as you go through the states of states of concentration, you do see, oh, this falls away, that, that falls away. That's one way you get to see them clearly. So those are the two ways the Buddha talks about insight arising it really, in relationship to jhana, either while you're in one of the jhanas or as you're moving from one to another. Now there's also the possibility, as you come out, you begin to see, oh, my mind just picked that up. You say, well, why pick it up anymore? I'm sick, you know, I've had enough of this. That's another way. So this is how we gain these kinds of insights, is learning to train the mind to be really, really sensitive to how it's fabricating its experience, and get really picky about what kind of things we'll, we'll think is good enough, what we really want to do. That's, that's, that's what basically it comes down to. Like the people in the Monty Python skit, okay, I'd, I'd like a little you know, chandelier now. <laughs> You just get more demanding about what if I'm going to be fabricating my experience, what's good enough? What's worth it? And it is, a, it is possible to get the mind to a state where it doesn't have to fabricate anymore, and that's when you find out that's really good. Any last questions? You're, well, it's, not, it's not imagining. You're putting something together. It's like, it's like fabricating a machine or fabricating a, a tool. Yeah, but you, seeing the extent to which you're doing this is an important insight. Like you're not just on the receiving end of things, receiving impressions in and sort of being the victim of things outside. You're out there looking, and many times you're looking for trouble. I want something to be angry about. I want something to desire. I want something to, you know, so I feel like I'm alive. You know? That's looking for trouble. <laughs> Okay, well, thank you for your attention. And you can take the rest of this home and read it. <laughs> what is the next part? Chapter 11? 
Chapter 11, you've got these writings about by John Lee on the practice of jhana. Well, we, we read through the canon, and then this, the, and John Lee's taken it. I think of all the, of the various forest of John's, his teachings on concentration are the closest to the canon. That makes sense of it. And then after that comes the, section, the sections on becoming. Maybe tomorrow morning, if we can, that can be part of the topic of conversation. So what time do we meet tomorrow? Um, we come at 10?